This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Greetings and welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mike Hove, and here's what's coming up. This is the first trial at the Hague-based criminal court dealing with the Darfur conflict, which the United Nations says killed roughly 300,000 people and displaced some 2.5 million others. That was Lisa Bryant reporting on the first ICC trial dealing with crimes committed in Darfur. And South Africa lifts most COVID-19 restrictions. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. In our top story of the day, an alleged former militia leader in Sudan's Darfur region has pleaded not guilty to 31 charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity. The trial of the militia leader known as Ali Kusheib is the first at the International Criminal Court to deal with the Darfur conflict. From Paris, Lisa Bryant has more for VOA. Pursuant to Article 82C, subparagraph 1. Wearing a blue suit, Ali Mohammed Ali Abdelrahman sat with folded arms as he listened to a long list of atrocities he allegedly participated in nearly two decades ago. Speaking here through a translator, he denied the charges against him. I reject all of these charges. I am innocent of all of these charges. I, I am not accused of any of these charges. International Criminal Court Prosecutor Karim Khan offered a very different take. He outlined brutalities supposedly committed by Abdel Rahman and other alleged members of Sudan's feared Janjaweed militia in 2003 and 2004. Rapes against women and girls, children being targeted and attacked and abducted, men and boys amongst others, being executed and killed, homes being wantonly destroyed, people fleeing with nothing, for many, their lives never to be the same again. This is the first trial at the Hague-based criminal court dealing with the Darfur conflict, which the United Nations says killed roughly 300,000 people and displaced some 2.5 million others. It's also the first trial resulting from a UN Security Council referral to the ICC. This is a really important moment. Elise Kepler is Associate International Justice Director at Human Rights Watch. It's not the end. Uh, In fact, it's really just a beginning. But we have not seen any meaningful accountability for crimes in Darfur. And victims have been clamoring to see justice, that that justice is such an important uh, step. Also known as Ali Kusheib, Abdel Rahman was considered a senior Janjaweed member. The militia group was fighting non-Arab rebels who had launched a revolt complaining of discrimination. Rights groups claimed the Janjaweed's response was a deliberate act of ethnic cleansing. Abdel Rahman allegedly played a key role in Janjaweed attacks against at least four villages. Prosecutor Khan aired clips of interviews of alleged witnesses and victims of the attacks. What has hit me every time I've interacted with Darfuris and actually survivors throughout the world is their dignity and remarkable resilience. 
The trial comes amid an uptick of violence in Darfur and unrest across Sudan following a military coup last October. Sudan's former president, Omar al-Bashir, and three others are also being sought by the ICC for alleged war crimes in Darfur. Khartoum has yet to hand them over. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. In more news related to Ali Kushayb, some internally displaced persons or IDPs living in Sudan's Darfur region have welcomed the opening of the trial of Ali Mohammed Ali Abd al-Rahman, known as Ali Kushayb, at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. The IDPs described the trial as a positive move towards achieving justice for loved ones killed during the conflict in Darfur. Some IDPs say other individuals charged with war crimes or genocide should be brought to court, including former President Omar al-Bashir. Michael Atit reports for VOA from Khartoum. Some IDPs living in Kalma Kam in Sudan's West Darfur state are expressing their joy over the start of Ali Koshep's trial today in The Hague, saying justice will finally be served. Speaking to this program from inside the Kam in Darfur, Kam leader Yaqub Ahmed says Koshep's trial has given IDPs and refugees hope and trust in the ICC. When justice is served, nobody will try to take the law into his own hands. This has given us hope that justice will finally be served. We have trust in the ICC and we have been following up with them since day one. Another IDP, Hanan Hassan Khatir from Kalma Camp, expressed her happiness after seeing Kusheb in the Hague courtroom. Khatir says she lost her husband in 2003, leaving her with six children. She says her oldest son was killed during the conflict in 2017. I do not believe my ears that such a trial would have been carried out. But today I am excited that Ali Koshab has finally been tried in the court of law. This man has committed a lot of mass killing, ethnic cleansing. Some of us have been raped publicly in front of our fathers and husbands. Our hope is that all others involved in committing crimes against our people in Darfur should be taken to ICC. Khatir says even though trying Kosheb is a big step forward, there is a need to charge all alleged perpetrators in a court of law for crimes committed against civilians. Adam Rijal is the spokesperson for the Coordination Office of IDPs and Refugees in Darfur. Rijal says despite the ongoing court proceedings in The Hague, IDPs across Darfur continue to experience attack, killings and other forms of atrocities and is calling on the Sudanese authorities to stop the attacks and allow civilians to move freely. There has been an increase in human rights violations that have been carried out by the Janjaweed militia in Darfur. They continue to carry out mass killings, rape, forceful displacement, threat and looting of property of the civilians. These atrocities have continued to happen even up to today. Despite the peace agreement signed between the government and some armed groups in Darfur over a year ago, Rijal says the area remains unstable. He also says the people of Darfur will be gratified if they see former President Omar al-Bashir and others who have been indicted by the ICC appear before the court as well, adding they don't trust the local Sudanese judiciary system.
All the court trials that have been carried out in Sudan have proved that the Sudanese authorities are not capable of carrying out transparent and just trials. They have failed to protect the IDPs as the Janjaweed militia has continued to attack them in several locations across Darfur. Al-Bashir was indicted by the International Criminal Court in 2009 over alleged atrocities committed by his government, but remains in prison in Khartoum after being found guilty on corruption charges. According to the United Nations, at least 300,000 people were killed and 2.7 million others from Darfur were displaced during war from 2003 to 2008. For VOA News, I am Michael Atit in Khartoum. One of the world's longest states of disaster imposed because of the COVID-19 pandemic is over. The South African government subjected Africa's second largest economy to lockdown measures, including curfews and bans on large public gatherings for more than two years. On the continent, South Africa has been the worst hit country with almost 4 million confirmed cases and more than 100,000 deaths. Darren Taylor reports. Opposition parties asked President Cyril Ramaphosa to end the state of disaster more than a year ago. They argued the economic damage done to the country because of strict lockdown rules had worse implications than COVID-19 illnesses and deaths. Economists say the state of disaster and corresponding restrictions cost an estimated 2 million jobs and resulted in hunger and other deprivations across the nation. On Monday, in an address on national TV, Ramaphosa delivered the words his critics have long been demanding. Cabinet has decided to terminate the national state of disaster with effect from midnight tonight. But the president added that some emergency regulations would remain for the next 30 days to ensure public health until new rules are included in an amended health act. The existing restrictions on gatherings will continue as a transitional measure, we will still be required to wear a face mask in an indoor public space. This is necessary to prevent transmission, especially while many people remain unvaccinated. He appealed to South Africans to get vaccinated, saying it's the best weapon available to stem future waves of the virus and to avoid overloading medical facilities. The health department says only 30% of people eligible for vaccination in a population of 60 million people are fully immunized. The department says it has enough vaccines to fully vaccinate everyone, but hesitancy remains a huge challenge. Celia Brunk of main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, the DA, says the ending of the state of disaster comes much too late. COVID-19 has for long now not conformed to any reasonable definition of a disaster. It's not placing strain on the health system. The national state of disaster could have been ended months ago and society would have been better off. So these extraordinary powers were not necessary and I think the government... The problem now for the DA, says Brunk, is that the government wants to make the temporary powers it had during the state of disaster permanent. Things like mask mandates, restrictions on gatherings can be imposed if these national health regulations are promulgated into law. Government can acquire the power 
to force certain individuals suspected of having a so-called notifiable illness to submit to mandatory medical examinations, mandatory medical tests, and even mandatory treatment. This is not powers that should be enjoyed by government on a permanent basis. But research head at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, Professor Mosa Moshabela, argues it's fair of government to have power to impose some regulations. We need to maintain the management of uh, gatherings and to actually think about how to position ourselves even beyond the pandemic to make sure that we don't overcrowd our spaces in order to prevent the spread of any respiratory infection. Some medical scientists say a fifth wave of COVID-19 will hit South Africa in the next few months. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Somalia's National Security Agency said early Tuesday that al-Shabaab is plotting to assassinate both the president and prime minister. This is a few days after Prime Minister Mohamed Hussein Robo expressed concerns about his life due to his campaign to keep elections free of irregularities and nepotism. On Twitter, the National Security Agency said it believes it has uncovered the alleged mastermind of an imminent attack on President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed and Robo. The announcement by the National Security Agency comes at a time when the Prime Minister and President are in conflict over the ongoing elections. The Prime Minister has upheld decisions by the Electoral Committee to exclude some lawmakers whose elections were deemed unfair, but who shared close ties with the President. In a quest to improve their country's economies, Zambian President Hakainde Hichilema and his Rwandan counterpart Paul Kagame have approved seven memorandums of understanding that could boost economic ties. Zambia's Foreign Affairs Minister Stanley Kakubo and Rwanda's Foreign Affairs Minister Dr. Vincent Biruta signed the documents in Zambia's tourist capital, Livingston. Rwandan President Paul Kagame is in Zambia on a two-day state visit where he's expected to hold bilateral talks with Mr. Hichilema. From Lusaka, reporter Elias Lemwanya filed this report. In the last general election in August, Zambian President Hagainde Hichilema promised to improve the poor economy. Since then, he has been using every available opportunity to do just that by signing bilateral agreements within the region and beyond on Monday. Hijirema hosted Rwandan President Paul Kagame in a two-day state visit in Zambia's tourism resort area, Livingston. They are expected to discuss issues of mutual benefit, among them trade and investment, as well as security. Hijirema says he's hopeful the meetings will improve both countries' economies. You are lucky because this visitation has been organized here in our country. That will discuss issues of cooperation to benefit our peoples. That's why we were elected in office, elected into office to make the lives of the people of Zambia better. Our intent is very clear to allow us to drive development. The two heads of state witnessed the signing ceremony spearheaded by their two countries' ministers of foreign affairs. Zambia's inflation rate is just over 13%, about one percentage point from February. As a result, President Hijrema is under pressure to fix the economy amid soaring fuel pump price and high cost of living. Improved trade may also help both countries. Rwanda export coffee, tea and minerals such as tungsten and niobium, which has led the country into manufacturing electric cars. On the other hand, 
Zambia is a large producer of maize and soybeans, which are in high demand in East Africa. After the signing ceremony, the president's spokesperson, Anthony Walia, addressed the media, explaining the value of Kagame's visit to the Southern African nation. A visit by uh, uh, President uh, Kagame offers us an opportunity, an incredible opportunity, uh, to explore numerous and various avenues of uh, collaboration. Uh, between the, uh, the, the two countries. With the signing of uh, the seven uh, MOUs, they span across numerous areas of economic engagement, uh, agricultural, livestock and fisheries, uh, immigration, for purposes of creating an expanded platform of delivering better and gainful social and economic opportunities to the Zambian people. In 2020, at the seventh meeting of the Zambia-Rwanda Joint Permanent Commission, the two countries signed three agreements which include the transfer of convicted persons, cooperation in the field of correctional services, and an MOU on boosting tourism. For VOA, this is Elias Limonia in Livingston, Zambia. In the past few weeks, the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo has suffered repeated attacks by different militant groups. Attacks by one group, the M23 or March 23 movement, made up of members of the Tutsi ethnic group, forced thousands of people to flee into Uganda last week. At the same time, the military has battled a group known as Kodeko, made up mostly of members of the Lendu farming community, which has been long in conflict with Hema herders and the ADF, or Allied Democratic Forces, a militant Islamist group. Jafar Al-Katanti is a journalist based in Goma in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, and he has been following the attacks. He spoke with VOA's Kate Pound Dawson about the latest developments. Uh, last week was one... Uh, a hot one in Eastern Congo because there was many attacks of different movements in Eastern DRC. Kodeko attacked some villages in Ituri, ADF attacked also Beni, and M23 attacked in Ruchuru. And that made uh, Congo's army very busy because they had to respond on all of those attacks. Now, you, you mentioned the military response. What else is the government doing uh, to help victims of these attacks? Socially, there is nothing. People who fled attacks uh, don't receive any caretaking. Some of people who fled to Uganda from the M23 attack uh, was... Uh, asking to was asked to return back in their villages without any help or support from the government. One thing is uh, that uh, the FRDC, the Congolese Army, succeeded to to leave M23 out of all villages they controlled. But in north, like Ituri and uh, Beni region where ADF and Kodeko attacked, they just did victims and returned back in the bush themselves. What else is happening there in the region? Are there concerns about uh, power supplies? Are there concerns about food supplies or health care for the victims of these attacks? Uh, in Ruchuru region, uh, there is a, a 
power central in of the park in the region of Matebe, uh, which gets problems from the last uh, the last week attacks because the war was in the the region of Matebe where the power dam is, and that make a problem to locals of Goma and surrounding because uh, we got power from that central. And now one of uh, the three uh, dynamo doesn't work. So Goma has a lack of power and not only Goma, but also villages neighboring the, the park. That was reporter Jafar Al-Qadanti in Goma speaking with my colleague Kate Pound Dawson. Ramadan, the Islamic month of fasting, involves abstaining from food, drink, sexual relations, smoking, and honing other human behavior between sunrise and sunset. In Morocco, this holiday time is usually a time for big family gatherings. There are several religious and cultural traditions associated with Ramadan in Morocco. Elizabeth Myers is an American analyst living in Morocco. She explained to VOA senior analyst Mohamed al Shinawi Ramadan traditions in the North African country. Morocco has a number of its own traditions that they celebrate during Ramadan. And of course, in Morocco, there's always the call to prayer that you have all throughout the year. But during Ramadan, you hear some different sounds, which are sort of like warnings to let people know that dawn is coming or that it's almost time for ftor, which means breakfast or breaking of the fast specifically. So there's something called the nafar, which is the sounding of the cannon or the blowing of a horn. It's like the old-fashioned kind of town crier. And that's to wake you up in time to take your pre-dawn meal before your daytime fasting begins. And then there's another canon accompanied by the call to prayer for the dawn prayer that alerts those fasting that no more food or drink may be taken until sunset. And also the announcement of sunset coming. That's another blasting of the canon or sounding sometimes of an air raid siren that is used to alert those who are fasting that the sunset prayer time has arrived and that they may now eat and drink. And then, of course, there are many kinds of special prayers that are done during the month in congregation, at nighttime, sometimes in the early morning hours. And these prayers are, are not obligatory, but many people do them. And of course, what the children always look forward to during Ramadan is the new clothes that they get. And that's very exciting time for them. And also, Moroccans will buy new traditional Moroccan kind of long tunic that are worn by both men and women. Usually they buy special ones for Ramadan. And then Ramadan is a special time for Muslims to read the whole of Quran. And then finally, at the end of Ramadan, there's a big celebration, the Feast of Breaking of the Fast, which is the end of the month. And Moroccans in particular do something they call Silat Rahim, which means that they go out and they visit their relatives and they renew their connections to their families and their friends. And it's a real wonderful time of celebration for Moroccans. So what's the typical iftar dinner in Morocco and what is the most favorite dish in Ramadan? Nearly every family will be sitting down at the time of the breaking of the fast to a soup that everybody makes. The base is celery. It's called harira hamda, which sort of means like sour soup. And it's celery with tomato base and usually at least lentils, sometimes some fava beans, definitely chickpeas. It's a very, very nourishing soup. 
And that's the first meal that breaks the fast. And usually you have that accompanied by a date and a special sweet called halwa shbekiya. And what it is, is a kind of pastry that is made into a beautiful shape with a, like a cookie cutter with ruffled edges and then rolled up and, and it's, it's fried, dipped in honey and sprinkled with sesame seeds. It's absolutely delicious. Charity giving is an essential part of Ramadan rituals. Would the high prices and inflation reduce the amount of charity Moroccans are giving this Ramadan? The prices of just everyday things, including flour, has really, really gone up. I suspect that it will have a practical impact on the giving of charity during Ramadan, but it is nevertheless one of the things that is expected of Muslims. So I think it will still happen. And certainly when people have extra food, they do share extra food with other people who have less. That's one of the beautiful things that happens here. And so the charitable giving and sharing and looking after people will continue. It just might not be quite at the same generous level, but Ramadan will be generous for everybody. That was Elizabeth Myers, an American living in Morocco. She was speaking with my colleague, Mohamed Al-Shanawi. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Mike Ove in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at vinews.com. And thank you again for tuning in and choosing the voice of America. 